to see you today. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I saw that shirt on Ryan, and I thought it was you, the, the, the Lost and Found shirt. It's a great color. It works really well. It was a, it was a, a fun Summer t-shirt color. for yeah. this year, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know what wakes you up. You know, maybe, maybe coffee does the trick. There's something that once that happens, you are wide awake. I found generally if I start my day with something really gross, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to let go of it, right? And, and in fact, sure. it keeps kind of coming back to me throughout the rest of the day. So um, in 1982, Star Trek put out, I think it was the second of the Star Trek movies called The Wrath of Khan. I went to, uh, Ricardo Multiban was in it. He was the villain. And um, went to a college that you weren't allowed to watch movies. You weren't allowed to go to movies. So we went sneaking away, an hour away, to watch this movie. We're sitting there wondering if we're going to get busted. And um, yeah, one of my dark, Star one Trek. of my yeah. dark secrets. <laughs> just, just. Um, so, oh my, that PG movie. Oh, but anyway, so there we are watching this movie, and the way that Khan would control people is take this leech-like thing and put it in their space helmet and put it on their head and it would, it would crawl up into their ear and embed and control their minds. Like a, little, a literal was, earworm. Yeah, so, so I'm telling you what, it's kind of one of those things that every once in a while when I think about it, I'm like, boy, I hope there's never a true con that puts the worm in my ear. So the other day, I'm out on the hillside and I'm clearing brush and, and a bug flies onto my ear and I go like this and I can still feel crawling. I do this again and it goes into the ear hole. And I'm like... Oh, no. And I don't know what it is. Is it a bee? Is it something that could bite me? And so I'm kind of picking. And the more I pick, the deeper it goes. It just starts, it's going to take up residency in my brain. Granted, a lot of space up there, but nonetheless, it's, it's crawled on in. And I, I'm outside. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm kind of holding, trying to make sure it doesn't go any deeper, all that sort of thing. So I come inside and, and Kim and Julie are inside, and I'm like, I've got a bug in my ear. you got to get it out. They both look. They're like, there's no bug there. And I'm like, it's there. I can feel it scratching inside of my ear. I can feel it moving around. In- are you awake yet? I can feel it moving around inside of my ear. And so Julie takes her, camera, her phone and, and flashes the flashlight on it, and that must have been enough for the bug to go, oh, that's the way out. I can feel it turning, and it starts to crawl out. And I'm not kidding, both girls are like, they scream and run. Kim says, someone needs to get that out. I'm like, you're the someone, help me. It crawled out. Japanese beetle crawled into my ear and Woo. took up residency for 10 minutes. So if I start speaking Japanese this morning, you know what happened. I'm totally messed up. You did this first service. I got chills more this time than I did in the first. And the problem is I, we were getting this in our family text group chat, like line by line. Like there's a bug in my ear. Bug went deeper. And like, so we, we got this step by step. And there's something to getting it like a little bit at a time to where you can look and be like, oh, weird. Or I don't really understand. Gross. Put it off the side. Hearing that story encapsulated all at once makes me just want to throw up. Living so thanks for forward. starting off. We got lips last week. We got beetles this week. It's a, we're a mess, yep, people. Yep, yep. And I'm glad you are smiling this week. That's good. Although yeah. you had some stitch issues, which was kind of fun. Well, yeah, not to make it too gross, but I uh, went back to the doctor to get the stitches out. And they took the four off the top, no problem. And they went for the three on the underside. And they took one, two, and they said, you sure there's three? Like, Yes, and then they had to like shine a light and look and see that my my lip had grown healed too fast and healed over one of the stitches. So they 
They got to go get it. I'll leave it. <laughs> they got to go get it. It was a lot. 45 minutes of a whole lot of fun. It's been a it week of adventure. <laughs> Hopefully yours has been a lot more calm. Yes. So yeah. anyway, on, yeah. on Friday, you got the weekend update. If you don't get this yet, it's important that you do. You can ask about it at the Info Hub. You can go on our website and sign up for it. We give you very concisely a few of the announcements that are coming up that week or, or coming in the near future. It always starts with a link to the scripture passage for the week, the songs for the week, uh, things like that that are just helpful to get your heart prepped for Sunday morning. But um, in that, of course, the first one is the fact that the grandparents on Tuesday night are going to be here from 5 to 7 and enjoying a little barbecue. So if you've got a grandkid, great way to come, connect, show off pictures. I've got the perfect one. I mean, Emmett this week was, was watching Brian feed Griffey. He'd throw the food. And Emmett laughed so hard. I mean, it was just... We want that as our alarm clock. We want him <laughs> giggling to, to wake us up. So that's going on. That's going on Tuesday night. And then, and then the next announcement was really exciting. We're, we're engaging with uh, LifeWise. Tell us about that. That's, a, again, a really cool program that teaches biblical education during the school day. Or, I'm sorry, character education from a biblical perspective during the school day. It's a school release program. And I know we've been talking to you off about it, but there was a really cool update in terms of LifeWise. Because, again, what LifeWise is is its own separate entity that we're just hosting here. And we have some people here at Southfield that are going to be involved in running it here. Um, but it started in Ohio and started you know, kind of branching out throughout the state. And once it had enough momentum, they started going beyond the borders of Ohio. And they reached very quickly, have reached 10 states, uh, which is awesome. As we look at the map here, you pointed out in the first service that Illinois lit up because... LifeWise Shanahan is going to be hosted here. So we are right. helping light that up. We're um, getting Illinois going. And That's awesome. We're, they're moving towards 15 states. So while we've been asking for prayer a lot for, uh, for, our, for the program that we're going to be hosting here, we want you to be praying for LifeWise as a whole, that, mm -hmm. that they continue to, to grow and expand. And one of the, when we had our, our meeting about LifeWise, uh, there was a, another church learning the ropes just as we were. They were actually based in Louisville, Kentucky, and you can see that Kentucky's not lit up yet. So just make sure that, um, that you're continuing to pray, not just for, for what's happening here in our community, but across the, across the country. We want this to be uh, a movement. This is a, a program that, that we're hoping shapes hearts and minds and lives in not just a positive, uplifting way, but a, a way that points people towards God. So. so one of the big pieces going on with that right now in the next week or two is figuring out the transportation piece. So uh, shopping buses, that's something we've never done before. Yeah. So we'll be praying, praying for Kim and the gang as they get on out there and try to figure out the, the best transportation for getting the kids up and back from school. So it gives you an idea of the highlights of what's going on. We're going to be wrapping up our study today of the book of First Peter, five chapters. We've been in it since Easter. And so we're going to be looking at chapter five today. And so as we do, uh, I'd love for you to just go ahead and read First Peter chapter five for all of us. You got it. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord over the people assigned to your care, but lead them 
by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In the same way, you who are the younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. I love this tool. You've heard of Bible Project. They, just, they do a great job, I think, giving us an overview of a book or a letter. Uh, you might read a, a book of the Bible or a letter in the Bible and, and think that an author just had kind of a flow of consciousness. They just kind of went from topic to topic that was in their minds. But, but as you really examine a book, what you find is that it has, it has tremendous structure. Mm-hmm. And I think the charts that they do help us to see the overall structure of the book. I like that they lay out the theme right at the top, that everything we've been looking at in First Peter is related to hope in the midst of suffering. No matter what we're going through in terms of persecution or any kind of suffering in this world, we can still have the living hope that's found in Christ. Another tool that they, that they offer are videos. You've used them for for youth group, for, for students a lot. Yeah, because a, a lot of times when you sit down and, and you try and tear apart a book, it's overwhelming, and it can be really, really heady. Uh, so you need to, to kind of go at a slower pace. Now, their videos do not move at a slower pace. In fact, watching Claudia try and sign of this during the first service, she was firing off. I, thought, I saw sparks coming off her fingers. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love the way that it, it tells the story of the book. While hitting the major themes, hitting you know, characters or whoever, whatever is important to understanding the book as a whole. While it's broken down into parts, they, they do a really good job of telling you what, what are we supposed to learn out of this so that it gives you kind of just the, the brief overview so that you can then dive in and understand, oh, this verse is related to that topic or this, this is exactly what they were um, referencing here in the Bible or here's what Peter was actually trying to express to the people of the time. So a lot of times I I end up showing one of these at the beginning of a series to give you an idea of where we're going, and instead we're going to look at this one today at the end of the series to see where we've been, to see what you caught along the way, and to see the things I didn't cover, because I didn't cover every little piece in this particular letter. So it'll give us a a good overview, lasts about seven minutes. Let's go ahead and watch this together. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. 
When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years, and that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all of these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the old ultimate Passover land. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story, and this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity 
clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence, and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. It's a lot there. As Brian said in the first service, Claudia was here uh, signing for a group, and, and boy, oh boy, he speaks fast. 
And there's a lot, there's a lot there. Obviously, a lot of things we didn't cover, a lot of them that we did. Uh, we're moving to chapter 5 today. You'll find generally in biblical books and letters, the final chapter uh, is, is packed with kind of those, I got to say this before I close. That's kind of the feel. Almost like, you know, when you're about to leave your kids at home alone and you're like, you want them to remember these four or five things, same idea. Just uh, an action-packed part where he's going to give us some important last words. We're going to hear some last words on leading, words on following, words on anxiety, uh, a word of warning, a word on the purpose of the book, and a word of closing. So let's go ahead and look at the word on leading. He started out in verse 1 saying, Now, a word to you who are elders in the church. So he's addressing, he's addressing the main leaders. Some of those leaders would have been, uh, would have been teaching pastors. They'd have had the responsibility for teaching the Word of God. Others were simply assigned the, the task of, of overseeing the church of God. And, and what's interesting is Peter says, I'm an elder too. So even though he's an apostle, even though he's one of the 12, he says, I share this same role with you, this same role of, of an elder leading the church of Christ. And he goes on further in his identity. He says, I'm an elder and I'm a, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now, if you're thinking of, of Peter trying to give his credentials to a group of people, there are a lot of things he could have said that are pretty impressive. I was a witness to the transfiguration. I was, a, I was a witness to the resurrected Christ. I was a witness the day the Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire. In fact, I received the Holy Spirit on that day. All the things he could have said, but he says, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And when he says that out loud, he's highlighting something that's rather embarrassing because it was in the moment of the suffering of Christ that he actually denied Jesus, not once or twice, but three times. Of all the things for him to kind of call forth as an identity, my worst day as a Christ follower was the day that Jesus suffered. And you wonder, why in the world would he do that? But as, but as you keep reading, he says, and I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. And I think in a, in a subtle way, Peter is saying, I committed a sin that I viewed as unforgivable. And I'll guarantee you there are a lot of people that would have seen what I did as unforgivable. Maybe even as you read this, you think I'm unforgivable, but Christ forgave me. Christ forgave me, and I'm going to enjoy eternity with my Savior. Even embedded in this short verse, he's basically saying, if you today think there's something you've done that pushes you out of the arms of God, you can ask for forgiveness and you can find, you can find hope in God. He wants to forgive you. And he doesn't only forgive Peter, but he actually employs him as a key leader in Christ's church. You might have thought that his day was done. I mean, you deny Jesus three times, we'll let you into the building, but you're not touching anything. No, not at all. He's, he's one of the key apostles, one of the key leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say, as a fellow elder... I appeal to you. He says, this is what I want you to do as a leader. Care for the flock that is entrusted to you. Care for the flock. Beautiful, beautiful imagery used here. He uses the, the imagery of shepherding. And I wonder in part if as he's talking about the sufferings of Christ, he's also thinking about his own being brought back into, into the fold in John 21 when they're out fishing, catching nothing, cast your nets to the other side, tons of fish, it's the Lord, go to the shore, he's got a breakfast there, bring your fish too. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. And Peter uses this as the prime image of what a leader in the church is supposed to be doing. Throughout my lifetime as a leader in the church, the the prime uh, imagery that's been used by a lot of people is the pastor, the church leader as CEO. You're the CEO of the business, so you can grow something mega. And, and And what Peter says is, hey, the prime role of a leader in the church is to shepherd people. And in fact, he goes on to say, you're to, you're to follow the example of the great shepherd, the great shepherd Jesus. That was his approach. When you look at the approach of, of Jesus in his ministry, sure, there was, there was a Sermon on the Mount and there was a feeding of the 5,000, but generally it was a lot of time with the 12 and even the three shepherding them along the way. So he describes some of what this shepherding looks like. He says, care for the flock that's entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Don't take on an attitude of, "Ah, I got to do it. Nobody else is doing it. Somebody's got to do it. Don't do it for what you can get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. So you're not looking, looking for your own personal reward along the way. He says, don't lord it over them. Don't rule with an iron fist, but lead with your own good example. Uh, some of us as leaders are really great at, at declaring proclamations and saying things, but, but here's the thing. You should be able to look at the life and learn about Jesus. Sadly, I have a lot of books in my library that I've had to throw away because of leaders who went off the rails because while they may have, while they have, may have written something great, the life that they lived was not a great example. Now, you look at this passage and you say, okay, Dennis, that's a great passage to preach to yourself. I think it has broader, broader application to anyone in any form of a leadership role, whether it's a leadership role in your family, on your team, on your job. What kind of leader are you? And as you look at this, we get the privilege as we're bringing Christ to a situation to being a shepherding leader, a person who is truly caring about the soul of another person. Not doing it because you've got to, but because you're truly called to do this. Not doing it for what you can get out of it. You know, I think one of the frustrations so many of us have with political leaders in our times is that they'll enter Congress or wherever they're going, and when they, when they enter, they, they're about financially where we all are. And within five years, they have $29 million. And you're like, how in the world did you do that on your salary? Because they're shearing the sheep in order to get something for themselves. He says, when you have an opportunity to be involved in a leadership role, it's not for your benefit. You're there to benefit them. You're there to help them. Don't don't lord it over them, but, but be a good example. Don't always just be about the talk, but be an example, an example that shows off who Christ is. So he gives us this word on, on leading, and then it's appropriate that he says, okay, now I have something to say to the followers as well. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, in fact, he refers to younger men, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders and all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the first service, Brian was sitting here, and I said, when I think of the younger men in this verse, and it doesn't matter what age I've been along the way, when I think of the younger men, I think of a person about his age, 30, 31, 32, under 35, you're, you're, you're getting involved, you're learning, your gifts are starting to be recognized, You can see growth in your career. You can see growth in your leadership. And and as you're growing, it's easy to start to get a little bit of a spirit of pride, a little bit of a spirit of arrogance, relying on our own strength and our own power. We don't even know what we don't know. And there are some people who have been around 
People who, when they pull out a cell phone, they don't know how to find the picture without handing it to you. Things like that. There are people who have been around, and we might look at them and kind of go, what do you know, old man? Get out of the way. It's our turn. And he's saying, wait a second. You need, you need to have enough humility to realize that a person who's lived a while has actually learned some things. And there's some things you can learn by listening and by following instead of by always um, uh, arrogantly asserting yourself. He says, Approach, approach people who've been there for a while with humility. Approach them with humility because God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So he says a, a prime, a prime value, a prime virtue of a person who follows is humility. And I'll tell you what, that is not a virtue our world loves, but it's a virtue that we need instilled in our hearts. It brings us on to a word about anxiety give you, um, verse 6 says, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. So he's, he's continuing, he's continuing the humility theme. Now, not just submitting yourself to, to a human leader, but submitting yourself to God himself. Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God. Give your anxieties to God, because he cares for you. He cares about you. Now, this is really intriguing. This is one of those cases that if you read these verses in an English Bible, you think you're looking at two different ideas. In reality, when you come to the end of verse 6, there is no period. This is one sentence. This isn't two different sentences and two different thoughts. This is one sentence. Admittedly, in English, that would be an improper sentence, and you'd be graded down big time for writing a sentence that way. But in Greek, it works. And what Peter is saying, we, we take 1 Peter 5, 7 a lot of times, and we use it very generally for all anxiety. And what does he say? Give all your worries to God. But I think when you look at the context, he's looking specifically at the worry we might have if we humble ourselves. Do you ever worry that if you actually humbly submit yourself to someone else, they might take advantage of you? If you don't, if you don't assert your rights, if you don't declare your right to a seat at the table, if you don't let people know you deserve to be here, if you act in humility, you might get stomped and trampled. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, you might not be recognized for all you are if you're not the one blowing your own horn. He says, I don't want you to worry about it. I don't you worry about it. I'm the one who exalts people, God says. I'm the one who makes the last first and the first last. So he said, you need to trust me in this, not worry about it, not angle. I care about you. And so you don't have to be worrying about this. He gives us this idea about anxiety to basically say, folks, humility is beautiful. And when we live in humility, we are showing off something about God that few people get the opportunity to see, especially in our world. Everybody wants to see strength and power and assertion. He says, I want, I want to show off who Jesus is. I want to show off the humble servant, Jesus. So he gives us that, that word on anxiety, and then he comes to a word of warning. Verse 8 says, stay alert, wake up, watch out. There are Japanese beetles that want in your ears. No, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's just always looking for someone to devour. 
He says, I want you to get this picture and understand it. You're going through persecution. You're going through suffering. And all you can see is your persecutor before you. You see the person that you're pointing at as an enemy because they're the one making the accusation. They're the one making your life hard. And he's saying, you need to look at this not as a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle at play. And Satan himself and his demons are the ones fighting this fight. Paul talks about it in, in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, not just the person we can see before us, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness. It says, you've entered into spiritual life, and you are in a spiritual battle, and you need to be alert to the fact that you're fighting on a spiritual level. Satan is looking for someone to devour Peter himself, again, you hear an allusion to that evening that Jesus, before Jesus is crucified. He, he, Jesus says to him, Satan looks to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. He recognizes a spiritual battle taking place. So he says, watch out for that. And then verse 9, it says, stand firm in him and be strong in your faith. Remember your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. You know what I love about verse 9? says the enemy is prowling, the enemy might attack, but you don't have to lose. You don't have to live in fear. You can fight, you can stand firm, you can be strong in the faith, and you can be encouraged the fact that you're not the only one going through this. Christians all through the world are going through the exact same thing. Peter doesn't tell us exactly how to fight the fight against Satan, how to fight the fight against spiritual powers. Paul does a good job in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, you, you keep wanting to fight your battle on Facebook, you're supposed to be fighting your battle on your knees. So be fighting. This is the person you're talking to. Stop defending yourself. Stop having those arguments. Get to your knees. That's where the spiritual battle is fought. The spiritual battle is fought with the Word of God. It's fought in prayer. The spiritual battle is fought with that breastplate of righteousness. It's, it's the weaponry of spiritual battle that we're supposed to take against Satan, not just physical weaponry. In, this, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he says, as we've said before, this is normative. If you're a devoted Christ follower, if you're living out the life of Jesus, you will go through some kind of suffering, some kind of persecution, some kind of opposition because of your faith being lived overtly. He says you'll go through it for a little while. His definition, a little while, this lifetime. Not for all of eternity, but in this lifetime, you're going to go through this stuff. But he will restore you, support you, strengthen you, and place you on a firm foundation of power to him forever. Amen. So he gives us that word of warning. Be alert. Satan's looking. He's looking to attack. But you don't have to fall over and play dead. You can stand firmly in the battle. Then he gives us a word on purpose. Chapter 5, verse 12 is actually a great starting point for this study. Whenever an author says, this is why I'm writing this, it's a good idea to know what that verse is. If the author is saying, this is the reason I put forth this book or this letter, let's find out what the purpose is. Well, he tells us, he says, I've written and sent this short letter 
to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing, so here it is, definitive. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Again, as we've said, I said just a couple moments ago, and we've said for a couple of weeks, part of what Peter was trying to get across is suffering in the spiritual life is normal. It's normative. It's not abnormal to suffer. You didn't necessarily do something wrong if you're going through persecution. It's actually the normal path. Jesus says in the, in the Olivet Discourse, uh, John 13 to 17, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They tortured me, they're going to torture you. They went after me, they're going to go after you. He says this is what it means to be a Christ follower. It's normal. And he says what I want you to do is stand firm in that grace. Stand firm in the grace as you're going through the fire. Stand firm in this grace. One version says stand fast in it. Stand firm in it. Know that this is not abnormal. Embrace, embrace the journey of the Christ follower. And then he has some closing words. He, he kind of wraps it all up. He says, your sister church here in Babylon sends greetings. So we already saw the allusion there in the video, but, but just to bring it forward once again, Peter's in Rome. He's, he's writing from Rome. He doesn't use the word Babylon to kind of, you know, cover where he was, kind of go incognito or something like that. He's using it as a way to say Rome is just like Babylon. There are some cities that I could, I could call to your attention. If I were to say, for example, Springfield, Illinois is just like San Francisco. You'd go, oh, and you'd have some ideas in mind of, of what I'm saying about Springfield. He's doing the same thing. He's saying Rome is just like Babylon. What was Babylon? A place of captivity, a place of torture, a place that was absolutely godless. And he says Rome's the same way. It's the exact same way. So this church sends greetings. So does my son Mark. He actually mentions two people. In the previous verse, he mentioned his brother Silas. This is Silas of Paul and Silas, Acts 16, Philippian jail, singing praises to God. Same Silas. He refers to him as a, a spiritual brother, as a peer in ministry. He refers to Mark. This is the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. He refers to him as a son in the faith, as a mentee, someone he's bringing along in the faith. So, and then he wraps it all up with this verse. Greet each other with a kiss of love. And you go, what in the world are we going to do with that? Greet each other. With, it's a command. Greet each other with the kiss of love. What do you do with this verse? What, what, are we going to institute a kissing policy? You know, ooh, what, do you, what do you do with this verse? Well, of course, we understand a piece of the culture was the old double pack, right? You'd walk up, left cheek, right cheek. You'd give them, that's the way you said hello. That's the way you, that's the way you acknowledged that the other person was in the room. That's the way you noticed them affectionately. What Peter is saying is, when you're in with other believers, would, would you... Notice each other with a degree of affection? Would you actually notice each other like you, like you kind of care about each other? Like you're part of a family? You know, one of the things that came out of COVID, there were a lot of churches saying this whole streaming thing is great. We don't even have to open up again. We can just throw the video out there. You can sit in your jammies, eat your cereal. while the If you don't like a part of the sermon, you can fast forward. You know, zing, zing, zing. You can do that. That's watching a message. That's not being part of a church. Church is the body of Christ. Church is people. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to acknowledge each other's presence 
lovingly. I want, you to, I want you to acknowledge each other that you actually care for the other person. I think, unfortunately, technology is really training us to be zombies when we're with other humans. You know, Peter might have rewritten this to say, for our, for our culture, when you see someone, give them a big handshake. He might say, go on up and give them a hug. Let them know you love them. I don't think Peter would say, if you're sitting next to them, go ahead and text them and let them know you're glad you're there. No, that, that's nuts. That's not, that's not loving interaction. Do something. The simplest thing we can do is use these to let the other, people, the other person know we notice them. How many times do we just walk through life looking down? Later today or tomorrow, whatever grocery store you go to, jewel, whatever, try engaging people in the eyes. It's crazy. Everybody looks down, looks away. If you look at them, they look at you like, what, 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 what? It's, it's crazy. We're not used to doing this anymore. He's saying engage the other person lovingly. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. A whole book about suffering. And he says, and you can live in shalom. You can live in wholeness. You can live in peace. God loves you. Christ suffered and died for you. So you give a life that's pleasing to God. Live in that peace. And so, Father God, I thank you so much for Peter. I thank you for this very real human being who so many times lived the way we do, highest of highs spiritually, followed by the depths of despair spiritually. That lack of consistency sometimes, boy, we, we can feel that same proneness to wander. I'm thankful that, that for all he did, denying you, that, that you called him back, you forgave him and you called him back, you used him as a, a prime leader in your church and as an example to us that, that we can receive forgiveness too. And we, can, and we can be restored. We can be restored to ministry, too. We can be restored to your service, too. And so, God, I pray that as we take this letter with us, we'll see the normal realities of suffering. We'll see the value of it, the way you purify us, the way you use it in the hands of our tormentors for them to see us acting differently, acting like Jesus, and through that, they get a glimpse of who he is and understand him better. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to walk to communion tables at the front and at the back. Gluten-free is on either side of the platform here as well as one in the back. And I normally give you kind of a, a thought to walk with, uh, but, but team is going to be singing. In fact, singing a song that I've been waiting like, I don't know, at least a year to do. So thank you so much. And um, it's, it's, it's all about gratitude. So if anything, sing along and, and own a reason that you're grateful to God today. Oh, man, I, I, I always love singing, but deeply moved by that. I mean, just imagine that moment that Jesus actually looks you in the eyes. How will you respond to the look? Forget the words, the look. I think for a lot of us, when that look comes our way, our temptation is going to be to drop our heads. He's going to say, will you look at me? I love you. I really do. Many years ago, kids were little. Kim and I decided we wanted to go to church at the building where we were married. And uh, it was around the corner from her mom and dad's house. And so we got them all ready. We headed over to church. It was kind of nice to go to the second service and just the second service. And it was, you know, we walked on in. And a uh, person at the door handed us a bulletin. We went and sat down. And, and then 
church was done, and we made our way back out, back to the, back to the car, and, and I made an observation to Kim as we sat down in the car. I said, I don't know if this happened for you, but quite literally this morning, not one person looked me in the eyes. Now forget greeting, forget holy kiss, uh, you know, not one person looked me. Even the person passing the bulletin was talking to someone over here and went like this. I'm not kidding. Not one person looked me in the eyes. And it's always kind of horrified me that that experience could happen here. That a person could walk in from the farthest part of the parking lot, come all the way up, leave, and not have one person look them in the eyes. And so let's just start with baby steps. We'll leave the holy kiss for a more mature day. <laughs> Let's greet each other with a knowing look. Would you start by leaving today by not doing what you always do and memorize what the carpet and the vinyl look like and the sidewalk looks like? Lift your head. Look for eyes. Look for eyes. Smile at the person that looks at you. Maybe even say hi. Perhaps reach out and give them a handshake or a hug. Again, the kiss thing will freak them out. Stick, just, you know, let's let each other know you're part of the family of God, and I'm so glad you're part of the family. Extend that love to each other today, and we'll see you next week.